Gyrish Nation, no games, no coaching changes, but another huge week for Notre Dame football. National Early Signing Day is in the books as of December 15th. The 2022 recruiting class is secured. We're going to dive right into the show. You said it. Just one segment for the show. We're going to recap Early Signing Day and what this recruiting class means big picture. And I'm super excited to dive into it. It's the lifeblood of college football. It sets the stage for long-term potential of the program. Recruiting doesn't win you championships, but it's a prerequisite. You need elite recruiting to be a contender. Uh, however, the nitty-gritty of recruiting isn't everyone's favorite headline necessarily. Uh, there's just so much detail to follow. So many different prospects, decommits, transfers, booms, busts. It's a lot to keep track of, and it's very hectic. Uh, but as we said before, uh, extremely critical to the lifeblood and the potential of college football programs. Absolutely. We'll, we'll break it down in, in this episode. As a reminder for our listeners, uh, we've got this show on recruiting. Then in a few days, we're going to do a show previewing the Oklahoma State game in the Fiesta Bowl. And then in early January, following the Fiesta Bowl, we'll do one final show to wrap up the season, recapping the Fiesta Bowl, handing out season grades, and doing a way-too-early preview looking ahead to 2022. Uh, if you like the show, please follow us or like us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps us, truly lets us see how we're doing. Also, if you like the show, we'd love it. If you rate us, leave us a review. But most importantly, please go follow us. We're going to continue to do shows uh, throughout the offseason, but not on our usual weekly cadence. Um, they'll, they'll be a bit more spotty, hopefully once a month or, or as big headlines come up. So if you follow us, if you subscribe, you'll get those alerts, you'll get those notifications, you'll know when to download the latest uh, uh, episodes and follow along with us as we go throughout this offseason. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say also follow us on Twitter. We uh, we have a lot of fun live tweeting during games uh, or just like live tweeting whenever something happens. I think that's something we didn't anticipate coming into this podcast was the the extent to which we would get involved in Twitter. Uh, but we have a lot of fun with it. So you should follow us, too. We, we enjoy uh, engaging with fans there. Um, all right, Brett, that being said, should we dive into recruiting? Let's do it. I've told this staff that we're going to do everything we do with integrity and do it the right way. And we're going to win by outworking people. And that's going to be our mindset in football. It's going to be our mindset in recruiting. We're going to outwork our opponent. Early signing day was on December 15th this year. We're going to try to break it down into um, key headlines from our perspective. And the first was decommits. Decommits usually isn't your favorite headline in recruiting. But in this case, it actually was a really good headline for Notre Dame. Uh, typically in the middle of a coaching change, such as losing Brian Kelly, you would see an exodus of recruits and, and a lot of decommits follow. And Notre Dame only had three decommits uh, since the Brian Kelly news broke. A really good sign for the strength of the program, the stability of the Freeman hire. Those three recruits were C.J. Williams. He was number 76 in the class, a wide receiver. He flipped to USC, probably the one that hurts the most. The other two... Devin Moore, number 252 in his class, a safety out of Florida, and Amorian Walker, number 518 in class. So a lower-end three-star wide receiver. He flipped to Michigan. Uh, good riddance to him. We had two other decommits very early in the cycle. They were low-end three-stars. It felt pretty mutual. We we wanted to kind of walk away from that commitment as, as much as they did. So overall, holding this class together, uh, just those three decommits, really good news. Definitely. And I, I think it's worth noting that these three guys, I think there's a pretty good chance that we lose them even if Brian Kelly doesn't leave. C.J. Williams, there have been rumors weeks before Brian Kelly left that he was feeling a little homesick. Maybe he was having a bit of a change of heart. He was talking to the USC coaching staff even before Lincoln Riley 
came on board, started taking visits in Southern California. So I think this is a case of uh, a guy who just wants to stay close to home. And you can never fault anyone for that. Uh, obviously, it's unfortunate that it's a rival of ours and we have not a ton of depth at receiver. Uh, for Devin Moore, um, and this is another guy where it's not too shocking either. He was talking a lot to SEC schools, in particular Florida, which is where he ended up going. This does sting a bit because he is one of those guys who, and you always have some of these in, in uh, recruiting cycles. Kyle Hamilton was an example. And Devin Moore's not uh, an example of uh, to the extreme that Kyle Hamilton was, but he's a guy who has risen quite a bit um, kind of as, as rankings have uh, continued to come out. Um, someone who's looked better and better as, uh, as we've gone on. So it stings because there uh, are certainly a lot of pundits, a lot of like recruiting beat writers, coaches who think that uh, Devin Moore is someone who, while he's ranked number 252, uh, when it's all said and done, he may be someone who um, ends up looking more like a top 50 guy. Morian Walker, he's been talking to Michigan for a really long time. Um, I'm honestly surprised that he was still considering himself a commit in the least weeks leading up to signing day. Um, not a surprise to lose him at all either, but Brett, I'm with you on it. I think for these guys, um, yeah, the writing was kind of on the wall, maybe even the weeks before it. Um, we didn't have any more losses beyond that, which was, which was good. Um, for a coaching change, especially one as sudden and chaotic as we had, um, the class largely held intact and that, and that's a huge win. Yeah, I think you said it. We were going to lose some of these guys anyways, and it's important to put into context. Notre Dame's averaged about two D commits per cycle over the last four years. That, by the way, is really strong. Um, that's already a very low number. It's something Brian Kelly took a lot of pride in. Um, for example, Ohio State's averaged about four D commits per recruiting class. So the fact that Notre Dame was averaging two D commits per class was really outstanding. The fact that we had five in this class and really only three here at the end um, frankly, that's typical, even if you're not going through a coaching change. But putting this in context of a coaching change, USC had 13 decommits. Now, some of those guys came back, but USC has just seven commits right now, and that includes a punter. So just seven commits in their class. That's absurd. Lincoln Riley, he's going to have a tough job. Uh, it's, you know, he's got some flashy high end recruits there, but, but very little depth. This class is currently ranked number 70 in the country per two, uh, per, per 24 seven. Um, the other side of this, for some other examples, Oklahoma had nine D commits, Oregon had 12 D commits, Miami six, LSU 12. So those are other big time college football programs that went through coaching changes and had significantly more turnover in their recruiting class than the Notre Dame did. So CJ Williams definitely hurts. Devin Moore definitely hurts, but every D commit hurts. I think the big takeaway here for Notre Dame fans is three D commits is a really low number, even in a normal class relative to other programs that have gone through coaching changes. Uh, really great job by Marcus Freeman. That was a big part of the rationale to hire Freeman in the first place. The recruits and the current players on the roster were pushing for Freeman on social media and, and they were backing him. And, and you saw that come out in this recruiting class sticking together through signing day. Yeah, definitely. Instead of uh, having a disastrous recruiting class, which many of these schools who had coaching changes did, our recruiting class is actually still a good, it's still a good one and one that you can actually look at and feel optimistic about the future. Um, one other point I'm going to make about USC. So this class right now, not much depth. Like you said, number 70. They also had a really weak class two years ago that ranked number 63. So when you kind of put two of those really, really bad classes within three years, that's, 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 that's when things start to get a little dicey. You don't you don't have as much talent within the program. Um, I don't think this is a turnkey elite program like some people 
who maybe are not staying isn't tuned to like their talent stockpile. Um, it, it, you know, I, I think it's a little worse than people expect. Um, but anyways, yeah, and, really- and, and, and bu- building on that, just for a second, because we play USC every year, so how USC does in recruiting is is a great benchmark and a great indicator for Notre Dame. Lincoln Riley got a lot of news for for flashy headline commits that followed him from Oklahoma, including is it Malachi Nelson, the the, the five star QB? That's yep. all in the 2023 cycle. That's all a year from now. So USC has a long ways to go before these quote unquote big commits that Lincoln Riley got will actually come on campus. Trying to do that with really two of the four classes on their current roster really struggling plus a transfer exodus. That's a tough job for Lincoln Riley to turn around right now. It's a rebuild. It's a big rebuild. And I don't think people are appreciating quite how big of a rebuild it is. I think people at USC know. I think people who are fans of USC and have been following this realize it. But for your casual fan, I think they just, they're like, all right, great. You're going to get someone in who knows what they're doing. They can just walk in. USC has talent. You know, they can just come in and, and they'll do great. That's not necessarily the case. They've had a couple week classes, like you said, transfer exodus. Maybe Riley can hit the transfer portal and find a few guys to help out. But I mean, it, it, to fill out the level of depth that they need, uh, and especially for impact guys, I mean, he's going to have to be like grabbing every impact guy who comes into the transfer portal. I, I don't think that's realistic. So again, their next class is looking pretty good. Riley can recruit. I think this is going to, I think if we fast forward in a few years, you, it's a different pic, different picture for USC. But right now, um, yeah, certainly things don't, don't look great for them. Um, I do think w- one other thing I want to comment on, so this class held together for Notre Dame really well. Uh, a couple factors that we've hinted at before in the past is that um, one thing that Notre Dame does more so than other schools, I think all schools do this, you have to, is that they we really sell the school, we really sell the program, um, more so than just the coaching staff. Um, and so when you have a coaching change like this, since the players are perhaps sold a little bit more on that school experience, it's not quite as much a shock to the system as maybe it would be otherwise. And also this is, uh, I guess this is the other side of Brian Kelly not being an engaged recruiter. When we had him, that it wasn't great. It was frustrating. There were guys that we probably could have gotten if he was more involved. But when he left, since he wasn't as involved, uh, there are a number of recruits who said, it wasn't really a big deal for me when Brian Kelly left. I didn't really even talk to him that much. So uh, his direct impact on certain recruitments, recruitments wasn't as big as you'd probably find at other programs. Like Oklahoma, for instance, where Lincoln Riley was really involved. And as we saw there, there was a wave of decommitments once he left. For sure. So wrapping up our first takeaway, uh, holding this class together in a coaching change, big deal. USC, not able to do that. Also a big deal for Notre Dame against one of our biggest rivals. Next biggest takeaway that, that we talked about a lot as we were prepping for this show is wide receiver. And th- this was a bad takeaway for, for the recruiting class. Uh, following the decommits of CJ Williams and Amorian uh, Walker, we were left with just one wide receiver recruit in this class, Tobias Merriweather. Six foot four, big kid out of Washington, number 124 in his class. So Merriweather is a very high end four star recruit, a very good piece to the roster. But wide receiver was already an issue for the current depth chart. At the end of the season, we were down to just five scholarship wide receivers. One of those, Jaden Thomas, was a red shirt. So really just four. Now we might get some combination of Lindsay and Austin back for a grad year uh, with, with extra COVID eligibility. But right now, um, seniors and grad seniors, if those are, if, if the seniors and grad seniors are gone, we will be left with just Lorenzo Styles, Deion Colsey, Jaden Thomas, and now Tobias Merriweather, the true freshman. 
So what exactly does that mean? If I had a, if I had a guess what actually happens here, I think uh, Austin, Lindsay, or Davis, one of those at least will be back. I think there's a pretty good chance two or th- two out of the three come back. Honestly, if all of them came back, I wouldn't be shocked either. None of them really have, uh, I would say, a great position for the NFL right now. That's not to say that they can't, if they put together another year, they could be in a position to uh, get in a, a solid uh, draft position. I think in particular for, for Austin. I think he certainly flashed some potential at the end of this year that we'd been waiting for. Um, however, he hasn't done so consistently, and I think until he does that, he's not really going to, uh, you know, he's not really going to be uh, a really high pick in the NFL draft. Um, but I guess if we're if we're hedging a bit, we're going to say maybe maybe two of those three. Uh, we probably need to hit the transfer portal uh, for some wide receivers. The thing is though that there aren't any true studs really in the portal. Um, there are a couple guys with some okay production. You got Todd Harris from Syracuse, Jaden Blue from Temple, both guys with 20 to 30 catches. Uh, one guy in particular I'm high on is Micah Pittman. He had nearly 40 catches for Oregon, so it's productive there. But, uh, who knows? It's really tough to predict these transfer portal outcomes. Um, I think one thing to note here is that if some of these seniors, uh, some of these experienced receivers that we have, if some of them stick around, and you combine them with the young talent we have with uh, Lorenzo Styles, who just looked really good this year, we do actually have some some solid top-end talent. So this isn't like a situation where I'm going in, if, if, if we get some guys to come back, and I'm like, oh no, like we have like nobody. There's nobody here who can make a play. We actually have some guys here who could make plays and could actually be uh, impact players. But really what the concern is, is the depth. We just don't have enough players. You have some injuries. Uh, all of a sudden, you could be leaning on players who have barely any experience um, in the offense, um, and have not established themselves as playmakers. So, um, we need to, we need to find a way to keep more people around, maybe add some people in the transfer portal to fill out that depth. I do think it's probably easier to find players in the transfer portal to fill out depth as opposed to just impact guys. So maybe that's a bit, it's not a silver lining, but maybe that's something that makes you feel uh, a little bit better here. Needless to say, uh, not a great position, uh, in terms of depth right now. Um, which is a shame because I would say at, at different points in the recruiting cycle, it looked like we were going to have a uh, a really good recruiting class for wide receiver. It looked like we were going to lap two in a row if you took last year and this year's, and it just completely collapsed at the end. Yeah, and this puts Dell Alexander squarely on the hot seat. I think he probably already was on the hot seat. Dell Alexander, of course, being our wide receiver coach, if if you recall. Uh, last year, Jordan Johnson, the top 50 recruit, True freshman, never saw the field, struggled off the field in the classroom. It sounded like nothing really ever definitively came out. He winds up transferring to UCF where he actually never saw the field this year for UCF. So um, a couple classes now in a row for Dell Alexander, the receiver coach, just not being able to, one, recruit at a high enough level, and then, two, convert that into on-field success. Um, I think you're probably going to see Dell Alexander leave this program. Uh, after the Fiesta Bowl. Another talking point is Michael Young. Uh, Michael Young had issues with uh, Chip Long, former offensive coordinator. He transferred to Cincinnati and became all-conference. He's, he's one of their top three targets. Um, not to mention other guys, Kendall Abdur-Rahman, uh, Micah Jones, Jafar Armstrong. None of those guys are studs. None of those guys were surefire starters, but they were all in the transfer portal uh, that were previously in the wide receiver room for Notre Dame, and that depth really hurts. And that primarily falls on Dell Alexander. So Marcus Freeman, he's held off on making a move before this bowl game. But if, if I had to guess, if, if I got to look into the crystal ball, I think Dell Alexander's tenure at Notre Dame is coming to an end. Yeah. I mean, at some point you just have to look at the results. Um, 
and the state of the position. And this is a position that's looking like certain position groups did during uh, Charlie Weiss and uh, Willingham years, just completely neglected, not enough depth. Um, like I said, if some of these guys come back, we have some high-end talent that could perform well, but there's very, very little room for error. And there is the room for a disastrous wide receiver room is certainly with well within the realm of possibility, um, which is what you don't want. Now, moving on uh, to a more optimistic uh, part of this topic, um, and that's who, who are we most excited about? So I think I'm going to start at the top of the class, uh, our headliner, Jalen Sneed. This is someone who uh, Marcus Freeman uh, recruited very – he actually was recruiting him when he was still at Cincinnati. So this is someone he, he's known for a long time, has had a longstanding relationship. Number 35 recruit in the country, five-star, and surging. He was around number 60 before the season started, won Mr. South Carolina football – um, apparently I think, he, I think I read that he was the first linebacker actually to ever win that award within the state of South Carolina. So that's another accolade. Uh, he's not Jalen Smith. Uh, that's, <laughs> that would be a tall order. Jalen Smith was also, uh, more highly ranked than, than Jalen Sneed, but he's about as close as, uh, to Jalen Smith as we've seen since, um, at least since I've been following the team in, in terms of, uh, athleticism at linebacker. For sure. I think the other area I'm really excited about is depth at offensive line. We had four commits on the offensive line. All were in the top 171 of the class. So all were pretty high-end four stars. Jeff Quinn has also been on the hot seat. I'm not sure if he'll be back next year. I'm a big Jeff Quinn fan. We talked about this coming into the season, how we lost a lot on the offensive line. It would take time to gel. And then they did. And then they were really good. So Jeff Quinn has done a good job getting production on the field. A lot of people think he's been riding on the coattails of Harry Heastan. He's not coaching Harry Heastan guys anymore. He's coaching Jeff Quinn guys, and they're playing well in the field. And then to see this recruiting, you got to give credit where it's due. Jeff Quinn's done an amazing job bringing in four uh, four stars on the offensive line. Really just a great job, especially if you consider the recruiting he's done here the last couple of years with Blake Fisher and Tosh Baker and Rocco Spindler. There's a lot of really good young talent on the offensive line in this program. Don't know if Jeff Quinn will be here next year to see it through, but whoever is coaching that offensive line in the next few years is going to have some real behemoths in the trenches to go work with. Yeah, and and Joel. I think it's just – so he's recruited really well, and the guys that he's recruited seem like they're all hits. Uh, Blake Fisher was supposed to be uh, the the best offensive line recruit from this past class, and uh, unfortunately got hurt and didn't see the field. But then Joel – who was a little less heralded came in and, and, and played really well. So I, yeah, I think it's, this position group is just loaded. And if you look forward, uh, the next couple of years, it's pretty scary how good this offensive line can be. Um, so I think Jeff Quinn deserves some credit there, um, for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he gets a, he's gotten a bad rep at times, but, um, you know, I think some of it's a bit unfounded at times. Uh, moving on to, uh, cornerback, uh, there were three corners in this class, and this is a position historically that we've struggled to recruit. It's now a bigger focus for, for Freeman, led by Jaden Mickey. He's a top 200 recruit, um, and making, and we're making even bigger strides in the 2023 class already. Um, so I think, I think this is a positive development. This is just like one of those position groups. I mean, I, I remember the days of Ronald Darby back in the, the early 2010s. Anytime we felt close to getting one of those impact corners, something would happen. And we'd lose him. T. Shepard was another one. He, he actually even made it to campus, and then within within six months, he was gone. So it's good to see this uptick in recruiting this position. If we can actually get some really impact talent, we've done a good job of developing guys actually at this position. I think we've been able to squeeze more out of the talent uh, that we've gotten than you would expect. Um, but if we actually get that high end talent here, I think uh, this defense could be could be really scary uh, moving forward. 
Yeah, I was just pulling it up. Julian Love on two four, uh, according to twenty four seven, was the number four hundred eighty recruit in his class, number four eighty, and and we turned him into an All American. So completely agree with developing corners. It's nice to finally see some depth. Similarly, the last position group we wanted to touch on was defensive line. This is an area where we've had um, a lot of depth, and that depth has really been to Notre Dame's benefit. We had 9, 10, 11 guys rotating at defensive line in games this year, but we talked about this a few times throughout the season. We didn't have big contributors that were big-time recruits. We didn't have four- and five-stars come in and just dominate purely on talent. The best example of that, Kurt Heinisch and Myron Tungvaluomosa are two captains on the defensive line. They were both outside the top 470 in their recruiting classes. They were both low-end three-star recruits. And we turned them into captains. We turned them into really productive players. But in four of the past five recruiting classes, just one top 300 recruit on the defensive line. That's not good enough. This year, Tyson Ford, big-time edge rusher. He's number 140 in his class. Aiden Gobaira at number 235 in the class. So two top 300 guys on the defensive line. We haven't had that with really any consistency uh, in, in recent recruiting cycles. And then some good depth. And a, a good example of that is Kurt Heinisch's younger brother, Donovan. Donovan Heinisch. He also committed as the number 500 recruit. That was ranked right around where Kurt was, and that worked out. So stay tuned. We're going to need to continue to see this. We're going to continue to need to see multiple top 300 defensive linemen in, in future recruiting classes, but it's it's good to see us take a step in the right direction. Definitely. Elson's done a heck of a job developing uh, top defensive line players, and now we're starting to finally see the top end talent come in. And I think one thing to stay tuned for is next year's defensive line class, some potentially really big time players, potentially five-star caliber guys in the pipeline. Um it just feels like this position group is one that just has a ton of momentum and, and now we're, we're not even, we're not slowing down. We're still rolling. We're getting even better players. And if Elson keeps developing these, these new guys like, uh, like his prior players, um, we could be looking at, uh, Notre Dame. I, I don't want to get too optimistic here, but we could be looking at Notre Dame's defensive line as a institution, uh, in the future. Um, moving on, where are we most concerned? We've already talked about this a little bit. We talk, it's it really what it is, is it's mainly a uh, wide receiver here in particular, um, but also the skill positions more broadly. Um, so, like I said, we already talked about wide receiver. Um, tight end, that's a position where Notre Dame always recruits well. Um, that hasn't changed. We added two tight ends in this class. One is a top 200 recruit. Unfortunately, he just tore his ACL. Hopefully, he, he'll be fine for, for camp next year. Um, and then another just outside uh, the top 300, Holden Stays. He's uh, number 323, Westminster in Atlanta. So, and that's a school, Brett, I believe that you know pretty well. Yeah, in fact, uh, Harrison Butker, the kicker for the Kansas City Chiefs, was a star soccer player at Westminster. So, um, know that well. Got, got a lot of friends that, that have gone to that school. Um, and everything I've heard about Holden Stace is he's, he's a big potential guy, tight end for, for the Irish. Yeah. So, tight end recruiting just keeps on moving. Um, so that's some silver lining there. Our receiving, uh, recruiting, uh, maybe not looking too great, but uh, we still have some viable um, viable uh, pass uh, pass options out there, some receiving options through through tight end. Um, but back on the theme of uh, skill positions, maybe being an area of concern. Uh, also, no no elite quarterback is noticeable. We got some nice pieces. Steve Angeli, he's a top three hundred recruit, solid four star. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong on that. Like he he could be a good player, uh, but he's not he's not someone that. Uh, 
you know, you're, you're getting as excited about as maybe even someone like Buckner when he was coming in, or even someone like Phil Djokovic. Um, he's someone who could be solid, but he doesn't, I would say his, uh, his tangibles don't necessarily just pop off the page. Um, one thing to also, I, I think we should call out here is that, uh, under Kelly, we had a history of only chasing high-end QBs, uh, every other class. So 2017, Avery Davis, he was top 250 recruit. Although I think going in, we knew that there was a pretty good chance that he could flip to a wide receiver running back at some point, just based on his athleticism. Uh, in 2019, uh, we had Brennan Clark at 521 and then, 2016, uh, it was Ian Book at number, uh, 517. So really, it's like we'd get an elite guy one year and then we'd get another guy for depth, basically. Um, so we never really were like stacking these elite quarterbacks on top of each other. And that's, you know, I don't know. That's, I, 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 I don't know that that was intentional, but I think if you're, if you're trying to have, uh, an impact player at the quarterback position, which is, uh, one of the most critical pieces in college football right now, really in the NFL too. Um, I think you want to increase your odds as much as possible. And one way to do that is just stacking these QBs, these high-end QBs, put them in a competition. And then surely the guy who comes out on top is going to, you know, he's going to be someone who could, who could uh, make some plays for you. The key there too is it puts so much pressure on the high-end recruits to work out. So Brandon Wimbush, Phil Djokovic, uh, Malik Zaire, if, if you go all the way back to Dane Christ, those were high-end four-star quarterback recruits. And unfortunately, we didn't hit really on any of them. And when they wouldn't work out, you were left with a Tommy Reese or an Ian Book, who, by the way, were two of the most productive record-breaking quarterbacks in Notre Dame history. But it led to a situation where you didn't have another four-star behind them. So the silver lining to this is Mike and I agree. We don't think Steve Angeli is on path to be a Heisman Trophy winner. (laughs) Again, he's still a top 300 recruit. He's still a very solid four-star. So we very well might be proven wrong on this, but he's a little bit more like Drew Pine. In fact, his rating is right around where Drew Pine was. And a lot of the news out of campus, Drew Pine's a very solid quarterback, but like just doesn't have the pure raw talent to go out and win the starting job. And you kind of feel that way about Steve Angeli. However, I feel a lot better about Steve Angeli and Drew Pine than I do say about Avery Davis or Brendan Clark or Ian Book. And now Ian Book, of course, went and proved me wrong. Uh, but it's it's not an elite QB that's noticeable in this class as the backup to um, to Tyler Buckner. I do feel pretty good that Angeli is a really talented starter that, that will be able to win college football games if, if put in the position. Agreed. Uh, yeah, he's definitely, he's more than just a depth piece. Um, and I think generally like the, the quality of QBs that we've been bringing in as of late has been, has been a bit better. So yeah, hopefully Buckner reports, uh, from, uh, of Buckner's performance in practice the last couple of weeks have been very positive. seems like they're feeling increasingly confident that he's, he's the guy, uh, Keaton Slovis rumors, uh, notwithstanding uh, who is uh, now officially going to pit actually. So it doesn't even matter, but, um, yeah, so yeah, we'll see. Hopefully we can, uh, moving forward, get more of these, uh, impact five, five star level QBs. Um, moving on in terms of this class as a whole, uh, where exactly does this stack up? So right now, uh, we've actually fallen. We're, we're hovering kind of close to the top for most of, most of the season. Actually, now we, we fall into number seven. That's no big surprise. We had, we had flagged that weeks and months ago in our shows. Um, when, when, when this, uh, when our, uh, recruiting rank was, was mentioned, we said in all likelihood, uh, what usually happens is that schools end up passing us up because they have, they just have more slots available to fill. We tend to fill our class a little bit earlier. 
Um, now what also hurt us here was also we had those decommits. So if we had, if we had kept those guys, uh, you know, maybe we were, we'd be sticking around closer to that top five level. Um, but that didn't, that didn't happen. Um, and one other thing to, to mention here is that there's not really any other help coming in this class. You never know. Maybe there's a surprise. Sometimes you're able to flip guys. Um, but following early signing day, there aren't that many big targets remaining on the board. And, uh, we're really not in the hunt for any. Um, so I don't, I also don't see Notre Dame like sliding too much from here though. Uh, there aren't that many guys that are, that are left on the board for anyone. Uh, it's a possible a couple programs pass us, but right now there's a pretty decent gap between where we're at number seven and, uh, and the number eight spot in the rankings. Um, maybe Michigan. Michigan's currently a number nine. Uh, they're in the college football playoff. That gives you a lot of momentum. That makes it easier to try to flip some people. Uh, they have one more 50-50 crystal ball prediction for the number 23 player, so that could give them a bit of a boost. But beyond that, I didn't see many guys in the top 100, top 150, top 200 level uh, for Michigan. So uh, I think we hang on at seven. Uh, if we hang on at seven, even at eight, I think that, that, that so that would actually be the highest ranked class for, for us since 2013 when we had the number five class. And that was right after the BCS National Championship run. Um, that class was read, led by Jalen Smith. Uh, and um, this would also be the first time since 08, 07, or 07, 08, where we've had back-to-back top 10 classes per 247. Yes, and Notre Dame fans should be pumped about being number seven. We, we talked earlier in this season about needing to make strides in recruiting. This class is a stride. This class is a big step uh, towards getting to where Notre Dame wants to be and, and consistently contending. We'll come back to that in a little bit and, and talk about the blue chip ratio that proves that out. It's sort of a metric to say, do you have the talent to contend? But despite now two top 10 classes in a row and how excited we should be, there's another really big topic that, that needs to be addressed. It's, it's the elephant in the room, and it's the gap in front of us. Texas A&M, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, they finished one, two, three, and 4 in the recruiting rankings. And there is a meaningful gap between those four recruiting classes and Notre Dame. Each of those uh, recruiting classes already have at least two five-star recruits. Texas A&M has a crystal ball for two additional top 50 recruits. Georgia has a crystal ball for another top 50 recruit, as does Ohio State. And Texas A&M, they have the number one class overall with five five-star recruits. And they could add two more. They could get to seven five-star recruits. To put that into context... There are only 35 consensus five-stars. So 20% of the five-star recruits in this class are going to Texas A&M. Notre Dame has one in Jalen Sneed. This would be the first time also since 2010, uh, the, the 2010 Florida class, where the number one recruiting class isn't Alabama or Georgia, but they're right behind them at two and three. So there's a huge talent gap between A&M and everyone else, between Alabama, Georgia, and everyone else. And to frame that, 24-7 puts out a composite score. They basically sum up and do a weighted average, and they try to balance out the quality of your recruits along with the quantity of your recruits. So quality being five stars and four stars, quantity being you have 25 commits or 15 commits, and they give you a score. And in 2011, Notre Dame had the number nine recruiting class per 24-7, and our composite score was 271. So our score was 271. That year, Alabama, the number one class their composite score was 298. So the gap between the number one recruiting class and the number nine recruiting class was 28 points under this scoring system. And it's a made-up scoring system, whatever, but bear with me. The gap between number one and number nine was 28 points. Last year, Notre Dame also had the number nine recruiting class 
and our composite score was 269. So basically identical, right around 270 points, almost identical to where it was a decade prior to that. However, Alabama also had the number one recruiting class last year, and their score was 328. So the difference between number nine and number one was 59 points. The gap between the number one recruiting class and the number nine recruiting class has doubled in the last 10 years. And we're seeing that again this year. Yeah, Brett, I I completely agree. I think this is consistent with the theme that we've been seeing throughout college football, that just the rich are getting richer. If we're looking at this year right now, Texas A&M, we mentioned, uh, so they're number one, they're 325, which is actually, it's below what Bama had last year. However, uh, they still have two more uh, potential five stars coming and potentially even some, some more rec- uh, commits beyond that. So they, they may uh, well blow past what, what Bama had last year, which is a, a very high mark. Um, looking beyond just even the number one spot, um, a little lower in that upper crust, but still within that upper crust. If we look at uh, Georgia, they have the number uh, three class right now uh, with a score of 300, uh, 311. Um, and right now, Notre Dame is up. Brett, what is Notre Dame at? We're at uh, two. Our, our score is 271. So right about where our score was last year. Right. So if you look at the gap between number three and number seven, uh, between Georgia and Notre Dame, um, it's about as wide as the gap was between the number one class in 2011, Bama, and the number nine uh, class in that year. So a lot to keep track of there. But basically what we're saying is that basically the gap was, was pretty big between one and nine about 10 years ago. Uh, but now the top programs are grabbing even more top players. So if you're moving up in the rankings, even to number seven, uh, you're, you're potentially even further away from, uh, from some of these top programs than you would have been before. Um, and so why are we saying all this? Uh, basically, you have to set your expectations accordingly. Recruiting is the lifeblood of college, uh, of college football success. Obviously, if you get great players, you're going to have a much higher chance of, uh, of winning and, and winning consistently. Um, and as we mentioned, this, this disparity has never been wider. Blowouts occur all the time in the college football playoff, even when Notre Dame isn't playing. Um, so the task for Marcus Freeman is to close that gap in a meaningful way. And as you can see from these stats that we just mentioned, it's tough. We, we're getting up to number seven. That's really good, but we're still still pretty far away from what some of these other top programs are doing. I think the scary part is that we play Ohio State the next two years. They're in this upper echelon. We play Texas A&M in 2023 and 2024 when this number one recruiting class will be upperclassmen. Uh, and then we've got Alabama not in the too distant future um, after that, although I believe that's out in 2029, so some, some time before Bama. But we're going to be going up against some of these talented rosters the, the next four seasons, and it's going to be a really tough measuring stick for Marcus Freeman. But let's close out this show with something more optimistic, our favorite recruiting metric, and a big reason for optimism, the blue chip ratio. The blue chip ratio is coined by Bud Elliott. He's the editor at 24-7 and and really a pioneer of sorts in tracking college football recruiting. And the blue chip ratio is pretty simple. It measures the ratio of four and five-star players on your roster or in a recruiting class. So the blue chip ratio is as simple as the number of four and five stars divided by the total number of players. And again, this does not determine who will win a national championship but there's been a pretty clear boundary, a pretty clear prerequisite or a minimum of what that blue chip ratio needs to be if, if you want to contend for a national championship. And so what is that minimum? Uh, well, generally, it's it's been 50%. So if you look at the 85 scholarship players on a roster, at least 43 need to be considered four stars 
uh, four stars or five stars for that blue chip ratio to be above 50%. Uh, if you look at the past last half decade, teams that get blown out in the college football playoff, college football playoff get blown out because there's a big talent gap. Andy, we've generally hovered around that 50% mark during Kelly's tenure. Uh, Wisconsin, Michigan State, Baylor, Washington, they've all been at or below that magical 50% blue chip ratio. And, uh, frankly, you know, they've been vict- victim to, uh, getting blown out, uh, in some of these big games, particularly in the, in the playoff at times. Um, even going back, TCU, Utah, there are other examples of, uh, high performing teams that face a, uh, one of these top programs. Uh, with just stacks on stack, stacks on stacks of talent, basically, and, and getting blown out. So I think something to watch this year uh, is Cincinnati. So Cincinnati, they're the uh, one team in the college football playoff this year uh, that is not one of those um, well-established programs that has brought in a lot of high-end talent over the years. Um, and then they're facing, they have a tall task facing Bama. So it'll be interesting to see if this blue chip ratio, which tends to um, particularly show in these big games, uh, if, if it does with, with Cincinnati. My guess is uh, Bama, with all their talent, with all this time to prepare, is, uh, I think they'll be able to uh, to expose uh, Cincinnati in this game. I, I completely agree. I, I think you're going to see that talent gap show out in the college football playoff. Once again, just like we have year in and year out. So the goal is to have more four stars and five stars than three stars. That's That's the magic rule. And recruiting class rankings, they're a balance of quantity and quality. So when we talk about being the number seven class, that's the balance of having more recruits, right? So if you have 25 recruits, that's better in a class than just having 18 recruits. However, this blue chip ratio says, I'd rather take 18 recruits if there's a higher blue chip ratio. So under Brian Kelly, what did that look like? Following the 2012 national championship, the blue chip ratio was above 60% for four consecutive classes from 2012 to 2015. However, following the 2016 debacle, it dropped off. We had a blue chip ratio of 53% or lower for five of the next six recruiting classes, including just 44% last year's class. So last year's class, it was a top 10 class. It was number nine per 24-7, but that was primarily due to quantity. We had a lot of recruits just not a lot of quality recruits with just a 44% blue chip ratio. And most importantly, the rolling four years matters, the cumulative for the roster. So for Kelly, that peaked at 70% in 2015. The 2015 roster had 70% four stars and five stars, which is astonishing that that then led to the disastrous 4-8 2016 season. And then following that, his recruiting went down, the blue chip ratio fell all the way down to about 50 to 55%. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting that, Brett, that you mentioned that it peaked in 2015 at 71%. I mean, I think a lot of people would consider that to be, at least since I've been a, uh, a fan, at least since I became a fan when Brian Kelly took over as coach, I would consider that to be the most talented roster that we ever had. So this, this blue chip uh, ratio peaking in 2015, that matches up with generally what what's uh, what's been my perception. Now, uh, so let's pause for a second. We set 50% as the magic number. Uh, the question here is why? Uh, it's because there's a big drop off after that. So there are, there are about 15 teams with a blue chip ratio above 50%. Tennessee, they're just below that number. Florida State, uh, they're in the low 40s. North Carolina is at 35%. Uh, no one else per Bud Elliott is really even close. I think the reality is, is that unless you're, you have like the top four programs who are, getting these uh, elite prospects at a historic clip. And then beyond that, you have top top 10, top 15 programs that are still getting a number of these blue chips. But then beyond that, 
a lot of most programs are not getting four or five stars with any regularity. Um, so that's not too shocking to me. Um, and I think if you're not getting those guys, uh, you really don't have the prerequisite talent to um, to get into and, and win the playoff, as we mentioned. So and so here's some some additional stats. Uh, the last four champions, Alabama, LSU, Clemson, and Alabama, they had blue chip ratios of at least 60 percent. So not even 50 percent. The championship minimum has been 60 percent the last four years. Going back all the way to 2011, the lowest uh, blue chip ratio to ever win a championship was Clemson in 2016. Uh, and, and their ratio was, uh, 52%. And granted, I think Clemson's an interesting example because, uh, they had, uh, they've had very, very exceptional quarterback play, uh, in their, in their title runs, which, which made up for some of those lower, uh, blue chip ratios. However, they did still meet the threshold that you need, uh, to actually legitimately contend. Yeah. And, and to build on that, if, if you want to talk about, well, what, what does contending mean, right? Not, not even winning, but just contending. An easy way to look at that is getting into the playoffs. If, if you get into the playoffs, you're contending for a championship, right? You're playing for the championship. In 2019 and 2020, all four playoff teams had a blue chip ratio above 50%. This year, Mike, as you already mentioned, three of the four schools, with Cincinnati being the exception, have a blue chip ratio of above 50%. And something that's even more ridiculous is Alabama and Georgia, they're blue chip ratio is 84% and 80% respectively. So we're talking about champions typically being above 60%. We're seeing that bar raised even more with the widening gap we're talking about with Alabama and Georgia. Now 80% of their players are four and five stars. So again, the blue chip ratio doesn't say who will win the national championship, but that number, it needs to be above 50% if you want to be in the conversation and frankly, it's starting to look like that needs to be above 60% if, if you really want to be in, in serious consideration. Definitely, Brett. I think, honestly, there should be two thresholds here. I think I think if you're above 50%, I think you have a legitimate shot of, uh, you know, grabbing a spot in the playoff. Um, but I think your odds of actually, like, winning a championship are really low. So I think just with, with the way some of these programs have been stacking talent, like Bama uh, and Georgia, you mentioned they're, like, in the 80s now. Um, a low 50% blue chip ratio, even maybe even now with, with, uh, these generational quarterbacks like Clemson had five, six years ago, that may not, may not be enough to, to cut it, frankly. So yeah, we might have to bump up that ratio. Yeah. I think it's, it's going to be tough to have any realistic shot, like it, unless you're, you're over 60 and honestly, you probably want to be closer to 70. Now moving back to Notre Dame's 2022 class, currently number seven, we mentioned that, but most importantly, uh, the blue chip ratio is a staggering 81%. That's really high. As we mentioned, that's, that's about where, uh, Alabama's, uh, current roster is. Uh, so that's the highest that it's been since Charlie Weiss, uh, inked the number two recruiting class in 2008. That was headlined by Michael Floyd, Kyle Rudolph. Uh, that blue chip ratio was 87%. Big picture, uh, this is huge. Next year, Notre Dame's blue chip ratio, uh, is 62%. And that's a pop from 55% this year. So that's the first time, uh, above 60%. Since 2016. Um, and of course, a lot of these guys are younger players, a lot of freshmen who likely won't be ready to shine. But given the strong start to the 2023 class already, it's likely that we'll be able to keep that blue chip ratio in the 60s. And if we have another good recruiting class, we could potentially even be tracking towards the 70s. And if we start hitting that level, that's where I actually feel like we may have a legitimate shot at competing for a title. You get a generational QB in, all of a sudden you're, you know, you're feeling like you're feeling pretty good about your odds. Time will definitely tell. Again, it's it's hard to look at seniors in high school and say the future of the program is going to be markedly different based on on these kids. That again, that there's a lot of busts in recruiting and and you know a lot of players don't work out. And 
a lot of players you don't expect to work out will all of a sudden become All-Americans. And so we're not going to see this play out next year. We're going to see this play out over 2023 and 2024 and 2025. But what we're starting to see, especially you mentioned it with what Marcus Freeman is doing in the 2023 recruiting class, which uh, we talked about earlier this season, we'll cover again more in the offseason. There's a lot more talent coming in, in that group where we might be seeing a bigger gap now between us and Alabama and us and Texas A&M. Maybe the biggest that gap has ever been uh, in, in the last decade plus. However, we now are also creating a really get big gap with the programs behind us, right? We are squarely cementing ourselves in this top 10 echelon and really on a rolling four-year basis right in that top five cusp. And if you've got a top five talented roster, you're going to be in the conversation. You're going to be playing for playoff spots. You're going to be playing for championships. And and if that builds on itself, especially with Marcus Freeman, who has really come in and emphasized recruiting, the the, the, the biggest emphasis we've really probably ever seen since Lou Holtz, may, maybe even bigger than Lou Holtz, in terms of a coach coming in and talking about recruiting and, and talking about how that's so critically important, um, you got to get really excited. And you see that in this blue chip ratio. And you see that building up year over year where there's a chance we're sitting here in 2023 and 2024 and we can finally say, okay, Notre Dame's got a top five talented roster in the country. Notre Dame is truly able to contend for championships on a talent basis. We haven't been able to say that before. And we're starting to see that play out in recruiting. Definitely. And I think circling back to another point that we made, I think the fact that uh, we were able to keep this class together, the fact that it didn't implode, has kept us. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't kind of get the little extra juice that we were hoping for from this recruiting class that would make things come a little faster. But it certainly didn't set us back, and we're certainly still on track. Like you said, Brett, to maybe have one of these rosters in the next couple of years, and I think that's something that uh, we need to look forward to as fans. And I think it's a big reason for optimism. Completely agree. So with that, recruiting for the 2022 class, it's largely in the books, pending some so many final flips here in, in the next six weeks, but nothing that we're seeing on the horizon. So with that, it's on to the Fiesta Bowl. Geirish beat Cowboys. Geirish. <laughs>